Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you! More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all, with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and what the hell, we're still here after all these years, talking creativity, business, art, discipline, and just about everything else we can think to cram into the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1090. Today we hear from Ed, who asks... A question on creative partnerships, especially long-term. What makes them succeed? What makes them fail? How does one find a creative partner? And how does one adapt or change when a creative partnership ends? All right, let's start with um, what makes them succeed. What makes them succeed is when the two partners speak enough of the same language to be able to communicate well with each other, but they are otherwise very disparately matched in terms of their skills, uh, skill sets or ways of thinking. Because what you want is someone who brings to the table that which you do not have. So if, um, gosh, let's see. For example, um, let's take my favorite uh, musical songwriting duo, uh, my two favorite musical songwriting duos. You've got uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, and you've got, uh, oh God, uh, Lerner and Lowe, I believe it is. In both cases, one of them was a brilliant librettist, meaning that they did really good jobs writing stories and lyrics. And the other member of the team was a brilliant musician and composer. And you brought those two things together and you got sublime works of art like the Mikado and the HMS Pinafore and the Pirates of Penzance and Paint Your Wagon and My Fair Lady and whatnot. So... Those are really good examples of what makes a good creative partnership. Um, if you're talking in the realms of science fiction, you can get really good partnerships either by having someone who is good with plot and someone who is good with character, or by having someone who is good with technical stuff and research and someone who's good at writing. There's any number of ways to split that up. Um, and it is interesting to note that all, with the exception really of Arthur C. Clarke, all of the greats of 20th century science fiction were creative partnerships, not standalone people. And it's why anytime someone got divorced and remarried, their style changed a bit. Heinlein, Asimov, Bradbury, um, Poole Anderson, and even Phil Dick, who, was, who had a lot of trouble holding on to partners. Their partners, and by partners I mean wives or, or wife equivalents, were creative partners. They weren't just life partners. And you can feel the stamp of the women in the relationships on the finished product. Heinlein didn't get into writing stories that were really, really sexually provocative until after he got together with Ginny. Um, it's not that he wasn't a free love 
aficionado before that time. That's how he and Leslin, his first wife, met. But he was an intensely private man before that point, and it was Ginny who encouraged him creatively to bring that part of his life out in his work. And she leaves her stamp on the work in other ways, just as Leslin left her stamp on the work in other ways, because she was a very, she had a very, very sharp eye for plot, and she did quite a lot in teaching Heinlein how to plot. And you will notice that all of his short stories during the era that he was married to Leslin have a sort of steel trap plot logic, like you would expect from someone like uh, Ambrose Bierce or O. Henry. This really, really, really intense plot. And then his later works, much more character-driven. The plot almost becomes irrelevant at points. Um, And that's because... In his life with Ginny, he became much more interested in the human side of things and less in the less interested in the engineering side. Whereas Leslin, despite the fact that she was a socialite, was very emotionally cold, um, and Ginny was very emotionally warm. And so the filter that the two of them provided for the ideas really affected how the stories came out. And in some cases, um, I can think of four or five cases for each, they actually supplied the plot ideas or the basic concepts for the stories that wound up becoming world beaters. The same thing happened with Isaac Asimov. The same thing happened with Ray Bradbury. Um, Frankly, the same thing happened with Gene Roddenberry. The creative partnership is very, very entrenched in literature. It's just that it's very, in fact, the first... uh, science fiction novel Frankenstein, first modern science fiction novel, is uh, not exactly the unalloyed creative work of Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote several other books, but Frankenstein has the fingerprints of Percy Shelley all over it because Mary was new to writing novels and Percy knew the novel game. And so you can see there's a book called The Man Who Wrote Frankenstein, which takes this case way too far and tries to claim that Percy wrote it and Mary just put her name on it, which I think is bullshit. The thematic material and the other things in it when you compare it with Percy's other work is just absolutely not the product of Percy's mind. But the actual writing of the book was obviously a collaborative process between Percy and Mary because Mary was new at it and Percy was kind of apprenticing her. This kind of collab- creative collaboration is very, very old. It's very traditional, it's, it, and it makes sense because the essence of creativity is collaborative. The essence of storytelling is collaborative. You go back to the bardic tales. Every time the tale gets told, it gets told differently because the artist is adjusting to the way the audience reacted last time. And the bards get together and they swap tales and they go, oh, wouldn't it be better that better if blah? Oh, that's great. Yes, I'm going to try that. So the, the, dispar- uh, the disparate nature of the two collaborators, very, very important. Um, I don't know much about James S. Corey, which is the pen name for a collaboration, writes the books that the, uh, what's that called? Expanse. The Expanse. Pretty common. It's a lot more common than the fact that there's one name on the spine of the book would let you, would lead you to believe. Many of my books are that kind of collaboration, um, either with Kitty or with other friends or with other writers. Um, they're not collaborations to the extent that they really merit or require co-writing credit, 
but they would not be the books they are without the creative and critical input of the other people in my life. Now, if you're setting up a creative partnership, obviously you're leaning much more towards the James Corey model than the me model. And some of the other people I mentioned are, are in between those two in terms of the intensity of the collaboration. But um, you do want a situation where the creative, where the boundaries that are around your thinking are bigger in some places and smaller in other places than the boundaries that are the boundaries that contain your partner's thinking. You want them to be able to go to fields you can't access and you want to be able to go to fields that they can't access and you bring back the treasures from these fields and you mix them together and see what happens. In terms of why do they end and what makes them end? Uh, well, first of all, if one person starts to think that they can get along fine without the other person, whether that's true or not, that will poison the partnership and the quality will drop off or the partnership will go away and the partners will go their separate ways. Or maybe they'll go their separate ways sometimes and then come back and do things sometimes. You see this a lot in the world of rock and roll. Bands break up, they get back together, they reconfigure. Simon and Garfunkel famously were best friends from the time they were children and they got to hate each other as creative collaborators because they had different musical tastes and different ambitions and insecurities that were great for a friendship and terrible for a business relationship. So they broke up after only four and a half albums, and every time they came back together, it was absolute magic. But they couldn't stand to be together as collaborators very long at a time because of the personal issues. The other thing, of course, that drives creative partners different directions of business issues. Um, if one person is dipping into the till and the other person catches them at it, for example. Um, or they have disparate ambitions. One person is satisfied just with making good art and the other person wants to go on to conquer the world. Well, if you're in a creative partnership, you can't conquer the world on your own. You have to have your partner on board at least in a silent ascent capacity because what it takes to conquer the world is a lot more than what it takes to be a brilliant artist. So all these kinds of things play into it. Uh, if one of the one or the other partners starts believing their own PR, starts resenting the audience, starts resenting the work, that's going to be death for the partnership as well. Kitty, am I missing anything else that could make a partnership fail or end? I would say general changes in life. Um, maybe one of them marries someone else. Um, and the spouse doesn't like them. The spouse doesn't like the the partner. Or doesn't uh, like the partnership. I've seen that before where the spouse is threatened right. by the closeness of the partnership. Um, one of them just gets too busy because of kids or a mm. new job mm -hmm. or um, new responsibilities. Values changes where the type of writing that they made their bones on just doesn't work for one of them anymore. Mm -hmm. Either because their interest changes or because they change religions or because mm -hmm. they enter a different phase of life sooner than their partner does. Yeah. Yep, things like that. All right, so um, refresh me on the rest of the questions so that we can uh, hit that. It's right. How does one find a partner and how does one adapt when a partnership ends? So how does one find a partner? Um, talk to people. Talk to people a lot. Talk to people about what you're doing. Now, this goes a lot against some advice that prominent gurus in the space, some of whom are my friends, 
give, which is that you shouldn't be talking about your creative work because it will expend your creative energy and you'll be less likely to finish your stuff. If that's a danger for you, then you're going to want to adapt this strategy a bit to what'll work for you. But having a good pattern, being able to talk about what you do and what you're interested in and what you're working on and all of that sort of stuff, that's just good salesmanship. And really all networking is, is the salesmanship of you, the person. What you're doing when you're networking with people is you are selling them on the fact that you are worth spending time with. Uh, just like seduction is selling people on the fact that you might be worth sleeping with. So um, working on your salesmanship pattern and your, uh, uh, what in blues they call it, uh, um, uh, what is the term? It's not knowing your bones, it's uh, chops. In in blues, it's called knowing your chops. There's several sets of um, default phrases that make up the blues. And if you know your chops, you can drop into any blues band, as lo- uh, sync up with the key, and improv endlessly. And it sounds brilliant. But the, the chops, there's only about, what, 20 or 30 basic chop phrases. But if you know your chops, you can, and I've seen this happen, I've seen a relatively new saxophonist on stage with multiple multi-Grammy winning artists in a blues dive bar that I had the privilege of doing the video for the concert for. And this guy was a judge during the day and had been screwing around on the saxophone for a few years. He was a friend of one of the band members, and one of the band members said, yeah, come on, play, it's not a big gig. And he was brilliant. He was nowhere near the caliber or pedigree of the other people on stage. And yet, he knew his chops, and he knew how to read the handoff. And as long as you know your chops, you know how to read the handoff. If you're playing the blues, you can create brilliance, even if you yourself are not brilliant. Salesmanship is very like that. Networking and networking pattern are very like that. Work up your chops. Having your chops down gives you a basic confidence that will allow you to ride a conversation into unusual places like, oh, hey, this person, getting the other person to open up so that they tip their hand and you're able to see, oh, this person might be a good collaborator for this or that project. I have met so many collaborators, especially when I was doing film, in line for coffee, in line for movies, going to church with them, running into someone in the park and talking to them about their dog. You just talk to people. And you will find collaborators. The most difficult part about finding a collaborator is finding a collaborator who will finish the f***ing job. (laughs) Because everybody wants to do something cool. And a lot of people are capable of doing cool things. But it is much better to have someone on your team who is only capable of competent mediocrity, but who will hit a deadline. If they won't hit a deadline, it doesn't matter how brilliant they are. Because you're not rich enough to afford the people who are so brilliant that they can command paychecks without hitting deadlines. Now, when a creative partnership breaks up, which it always will, unless the two of you die in the same plane crash, every partnership of any kind ends, either with the parting of the ways or with the death of one of the participants. It will end, and you need to have a plan for what you're going to do after that. Your plan may consist of playing your own fiddle in between projects with your partner. Your plan may consist of having a stack of things you want to do that 
you are going to do once the partnership breaks up. It may consist of having the rights to the name that the collaboration is writing under, so that you can continue doing it when they bail. It all depends, but it boils down to one of two things. Either you've got another rope that you've got one hand on, or you're going to have to climb another tree and find a vine. The most difficult part, other than the personal fallout of creative partnerships breaking up, or worse, the legal fallout if you don't have your contracts in order, the most difficult part is refinding your creative voice and identity without the duet. So you are very well served when you're in creative partnerships, especially intense long-term ones, to continue to do your own thing on the side. Because it's just like in a marriage or a long-term romantic partnership. If you're not doing your own thing on the side, you are going to have less to bring to the partnership. Now, granted, most marriages are monogamous, so your own thing on the side is probably not going to be a mistress. But you should still be developing as a person and having interests and other relationships of whatever sort are allowed, so that you have things that are opening you up, so that you can bring more of yourself to the table, so that you are growing so there is more of yourself to bring to the table. Creative partnerships, same thing. And if you're in a creative partnership where, the, where you have an exclusivity deal, then whatever you're doing on your own time, just don't publish it until that exclusivity deal lapses, because exclusivity deals mostly especially if you're not an idiot, have to do with when you're publishing, not when you're thinking about or writing stuff down in the privacy of your own home. So, that's what I got for you, Ed. Thank you very much for such a fertile and deep question, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is distributed by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text and production are copyright 2024, J. Daniel Sawyer. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. There are new books in the Everyday Novelist series coming out this year, so be sure to visit everydaynovelist.com support to join up and get your free copies of these new books as they're coming out, as well as other goodies that we've got up our sleeves.